Welcome to the Mycotoxin Matters podcast from Alltech Mycotoxin Management. As mycotoxins present an ever-increasing threat to livestock production, join us as we discuss these impacts and potential solutions, sustainable farming, and our vision for a planet of plenty. Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the Mycotoxin Matters podcast, where we're going to take time uh, in this edition to review the results of our latest harvest analysis projects that have been going on around the world. Uh, As we sit here in uh, January of 2023, uh, we now have all of the data compiled for the harvests that have taken place throughout various countries in the Northern Hemisphere towards at the end of last year. And we're joined by Dr. Max Hawkins and Dr. Radka Boratova, uh, both of whom work for Alltech's mycotoxin management team and who bring with them uh, many years of experience uh, providing uh, technical support back into the feed industry. Uh, so Max and Radka, you're very welcome to uh, to the podcast today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. So Radka, maybe you could start us off and just talk to us a little bit about what exactly have we done as part of these harvest analysis projects? You know, what grains did we test and, and how were they tested? Yes, Nick. Basically, what the harvest analysis is, or what is the objective of the harvest analysis, is to give as good information or as precise information as possible uh, to a grain to anybody who is going to purchase grain or who is going to use grain and forages uh, for the animal feeding, and would like to know what is the mycotoxin situation in those, and that's why we always what we do. We analyze newly harvested grains. When we talk about small grains, we are collecting the the samples at the beginning of July. It lasts until the end of September, mid of uh, October. When we talk about large grain, that's corn. This is uh, collected. These samples are collected uh, in September and it lasts until end of November. The same for forages. The straw samples, which were also analyzed this year and also previous year uh, in Europe, uh, these samples are collected uh, just right after the harvest of uh, small grain. When we talk about grains, and I talk about small grain, then we analyze wheat, barley, triticale and oats in different parts of the world, so in different regions. If we talk about large grain, then it's uh, corn, and when we talk about silages, these are different types of silages, but mainly corn and grass silage. And then we also analyzed uh, straw in Denmark. Uh, the methods which were used for the analysis of uh, grains and uh, forages were various because all were anal- all samples were analyzed in different labs around the world. Um, these labs are using uh, different uh, analytical techniques. Most of these samples, nevertheless, were analyzed uh, uh, in 37 plus uh, labs in Ireland and in Kentucky. The other part, a big proportion of samples were analyzed in Europe by uh, SGS, our partner. They used LCMSMS 
HPLC systems, this is fat chemistry, but also ELISA uh, systems. And um, the straw samples and forage samples were analyzed also in 37 plus lab. And uh, just to add, 37 plus lab is analyzing every sample for 54 different mycotoxins by using UPLC MSMS method. So that was a little bit in a nutshell what we do. It's the, the core information is that it's all is newly harvested grains. It's not the samples which we would be collecting throughout the entire year, but we are even focusing on newly harvested grains and forages. And Ravka, maybe just a point of clarification. When we are collecting those samples, those samples are collected as very much as a generic survey as opposed to maybe some other samples that would come into our labs where there's a specific issue on a farm uh, where we're looking to try and diagnose something. These these samples are a random collection of samples. Exactly, exactly. Nobody knows uh, what, what these samples are because they are basically collected before they are used for uh, feed manufacturing. So they are not causing any problems in the animals. There is no indication these samples are somehow spoiled by moles or have some high mycotoxin loads. There's just no information and these are random samples which we collect ourselves or uh, our customers are sending those samples in the labs. Excellent. Thanks, Radka. And so maybe Max, if we if we turn to yourself, there's there's clearly a lot of data and information that we can glean from the results of the harvest analysis projects. Maybe you could give us a, a really quick trip around the world and give us some of the sort of top line overview as to some of those insights that that have been derived from the results that you've seen. Yeah, Nick, uh, you're correct with the amount of data that's collected. And even though we we went through a lot of that data, really all of the data to date, but we're going to continue to go through that data and glean out as we move through the rest of the year, uh, being able to add that with uh, samples that come in, coming out of storage to see what those trends are. Uh, globally, there's a lot of difference but yet a considerable amount of con similarity uh, as we move different regions, different continents around the globe. Uh, the biggest similarity that we see is the weather pattern and the mycotoxins that's generated from that situation. Uh, many parts of the globe this year experienced some drought conditions maybe not across the whole continent, but certainly across portions of it. And that made a big difference as we get into those droughted conditions, lesser water, uh, lesser moisture available, we tend to see more aspergillus mold and aspergillus toxins. And that's very evident, uh, North America, Europe, Latin America, and even to portions of Oceania. Uh, those types of toxins, even though we still have to deal with them, they may not be as severe an impact as the trichothecenes where we tend to get from wetter weather and every continent experienced some portions of wet weather that generated fusarium molds and the fusarium mycotoxins. Uh, multiple mycotoxins uh, per sample, very consistent going around the globe. Uh, 
one thing I think that we noticed uh, with the drier weather, we we thought that aflatoxin might be somewhat of a, a more major problem. I think it it is in portions of Europe. Uh, it hasn't been as severe a problem as we thought it might be throughout the central and western United States and into western Canada, where the drought was fairly severe. Uh, but going around the globe, weather patterns are going to generate consistent mold and mycotoxin trends, no matter which continent you're on. And this year, the greatest amount of risk came from wetter areas that produce fusarium molds and multiple fusarium mycotoxins. Thanks, Max. Radke, then, if, if we come back to yourself, and Max has sort of talked about some of those similarities and and differences with the mycotoxin profiles that we've seen, which are largely dependent uh, on the weather uh, related to those different growing seasons in in the different geographies. If you look at some of those key findings from the mycotoxin risk standpoint, what are some of the interpretations that you make on the harvest analyses that we've we've seen? That's a very good question, Nick, because we got plenty of data from many different regions and it's really difficult I would say to summarize but for me the key findings are quite similar to what Max was going through. Uh, I would go just through the issues and then I would like to summarize like maybe the number one finding per region that would be maybe the best way to go through these. So for me what I have seen I'm based in Europe and uh, this is something common for Europe and for the US. Hot and dry weather, as Max already mentioned, is responsible for high incidence of aflatoxins, aflatoxin B1. Again, small green are of very good quality when you look at Europe, look at the Canada. Uh, and the most prevalent mycotoxins are emerging mycotoxins. But we have to realize that low risk doesn't mean no risk. Because we still, as Max already mentioned, we talk about multi-mycotoxin contamination. Forages are contaminated high levels of penicillium mycotoxins. It's a high risk when we look at the risk level. And also straw, because I'm from Europe, so we have the data from straw. It's high risky ingredient because of high levels of type B trichodesins. But probably we'll talk about this a little bit later. If I have to summarize a region by region, and I would have to choose one issue, which is like the burning issue in that region. For me in Europe uh, this year, uh, it's definitely aflatoxins, aflatoxin B1. The issue for milk producers, that's a high risk, uh, and it's coming from corn. When we go to the US, then I think that's dioxin vinyl in the corn when we found very high levels uh, of dioxin vinyl. The average was 1,700 ppb. So corn could be also highly risky ingredient uh, when we talk about dioxin vinyl contamination in Canada. It's very important. I'm again, again, repeat, I'm from Europe, but we import a lot of grain from Canada, especially corn. So corn. Uh, we found high prevalence of dioxin zeralanon, zeralanon, T2 toxin, HT2 toxin in corn. So when they, we will find this in Ireland or in the UK, and it's corn imported from Canada, that's probably the issue. Uh, if we go to other regions like India, it's 
the, the samples which we tested in India, 80% of samples were positive for mold. So they were moldy. And there is a high prevalence of aflatoxins, dioxinimanol, and xylanol. And then when we go to more like peaceful region, which is uh, would be Australia, normally Australia is a country with quite hot and dry weather, and we don't have a high prevalence of mycotoxins, whatever type, but this year was different. There's high moisture, floods, a lot of rain, uh, low temperatures, which favors fusarium uh, mycotoxins, which produce uh, dioxinivalinol, xeronin. So definitely uh, the, um, the harvest in Australia is much, much, uh, the quality of the harvest in terms of mycotoxin contamination is much worse than it was in 2021. And finally, if you go to Asia, Asia is just gets a cocktail of different raw materials from all around the world. So it's very important uh, uh, everybody who imports uh, raw material in Asia from some part of the world uh, to be aware which mycotoxins are an issue in that part of the world. We cannot compare really conditions in India with conditions in Canada or Europe or Australia. So it's very important to know the conditions um, and the mycotoxin uh, contamination profiles of different uh, different countries. So definitely uh, some high risk for forages, high risk for straws, low risk for small grain, and um, definitely corn could be moderate to high risk, depending to what animal species are we going to feed that corn. So how I would like to put it in a little bit into a nutshell, but it's quite complicated because a huge amount of data. Yeah, certainly, Radka, trying to summarise all of uh, that data across so many countries and different grains and forages is is tough, but hopefully you know, that's giving people a bit of a, a top line on some of the, the key things to look out for in terms of some of those ingredients, forages and, and geographic origins. It, it, you mentioned earlier that different analytical methods had been used as part of the analysis uh, and that those different methods test for different mycotoxin panels. So when you look across the data from those different panels, is there anything that, that stands out that, you know, between the methods and between the different mycotoxins uh, that have been evaluated? This is an excellent question, Nick, because as the the raw materials were tested in different parts of the world, in different labs, uh, we are not just comparing 37 plus analyses with the other wet chemistries, ELISAs and rapid test kits. They are testing for a different amount of mycotoxins. 37 plus is testing for 54 mycotoxins when compared to the other bad chemistry methods like LCMSMS or HPLC or ELISAs or rapid tests where we are getting results for four to six different uh, different mycotoxins. Uh, we also talk about the same method and the difference using the same method in different labs, different labs have different uh, limits of quantification. This is also where lower the limit of quantification, a uh, higher probability I will find some, uh, some, let's say, lower levels of mycotoxins. A higher limits of quantification, higher probability I will miss uh, those uh, mycotoxins. So it's not only to compare the methods, but it's also to compare the limits of quantification among the um, um, the labs, uh, that's 
that's a little bit an issue. And of course, we have to realize more mycotoxins we can test for uh, probability we will find more mycotoxins is higher. If, for example, I could test for 1,000 mycotoxins out of 1,000, then the picture I will get finally is much more reliable as if I can test for uh, 10 mycotoxins out of 1,000 mycotoxins. This is automatically. So every time uh, we are testing for um, more mycotoxins, so like let's say 30, in 37 plus is 54 different mycotoxins, the probability I can do more proper or better risk estimation is higher. So I think we can estimate the mycotoxin risk better if we can look for more mycotoxins than if we are just testing for one or two or three different mycotoxins. But this is a little bit um, difficult, um, comparing different methods, comparing uh, different limits of quantification. And, uh, yeah, when reporting, we have to take in uh, all this into the consideration. So, so Radka then, as you've sort of laid out uh, some of those differences in terms of the methods, what mycotoxins have we seen when we use those methods like 37 plus that are testing for more mycotoxins? What sort of mycotoxins do we see in those scenarios? That's partly what I already uh, uh, described when I answer the first question, that for example, in small grains that we found high prevalence of emerging megatoxins, 100% of samples, so all samples from Europe, for example, were positive for emerging megatoxins. And if we wouldn't test for those megatoxins, we wouldn't know they are there and they are causing the risk for the animals, uh, possibly humans and so on. Uh, this is one group of mycotoxins which we are testing at 37 plus lab. Another group of mycotoxins could be penicillium mycotoxins. We found out that forages, uh, there's very high prevalence of uh, the penicillium mycotoxins uh, like penicillic acid or mycophenolic acid which if we wouldn't test for those mycotoxins in 37 plus lab, we would never find out. We'd probably find out that the silage, silage A, B or C, X, Y, Z contains mm, some levels, maybe of dioxinivanol, sometimes these and that mycotoxin. But the most important mycotoxins in forages or silages are the penicillin mycotoxins. It's high prevalence and very high levels, and they are highly risky for ruminants. So these are mycotoxins which are uh, not routinely tested. Uh, they are also not legislatively regulated. Uh, they are very often found. There is very high prevalence in some raw materials, especially when we talk emerging mycotoxins, penicillin mycotoxins, the other aspergillus uh, mycotoxins, and many others, uh, which we take into consideration we are, when we are testing sea uh, samples in 37 plus lab. That's the difference uh, compared to the other back chemistry analysis or rapid test kits, ELISA testing. Thanks, Radka. Maybe then, Max, we come to you for the, the final question around uh, the, the concept of forages. I think we've, we've talked uh, a lot about the grain side of things and, and Radka's touched on the forage side a little bit uh, based on the results that we've seen from the harvest analysis project. What insights might you give us on the silage and straw samples that have been analyzed? Well, the, the forages certainly play a major portion uh, 
and was as you get into the ruminants and the forage inclusions, they're they're at a pretty high inclusion rate, uh, particularly on the dairy side. So even moderate levels of risk when animals consume high amounts of that forage dry matter, it can be quite problematic. If we look at it globally, uh, or even compare, let's say, North America to Europe, where all the samples were analyzed with 37 plus, uh, and you can make that comparison more accurately, uh, all those all those four examples contain six and a half mycotoxins per sample on average, with 100% of the samples containing multiple mycotoxins. The greatest risk kind of goes by which forage that you're feeding with, with corn silage, that risk is primarily coming from uh, the type B trichothecenes or the Don deoxynevalanol family of toxins and xerolinone. But yet, as we get into uh, Europe, where we feed a much higher prevalence of grass silage, that greatest risk comes from penicillium. So uh, different parts of the world, forages present different risks, uh, but they can all be quite significant. If we look at it globally, 83% of all forage samples are moderate or high risk. So it bears watching. We need producers need to test to know what those risk levels are going to be. When we look at straw, which is uh, it is more prevalent use in Europe than it is in the U.S., but uh, the U because the additional requirement to bed with. Uh, but even in the U.S., where we feed a lot of straw in certain dairy diets, uh, the straw came from Europe. Uh, was averaging five and a half mycotoxins per sample. Uh, all samples contain multiple mycotoxins. And that risk is coming from a, a bigger variety. Uh, there's the Don family of toxins or the B trichothecenes, uh, xerolinone, certainly, because uh, typically where we find higher levels of Don, we can also find higher or more significant levels of xerolinone, but also there was very concerning levels of citronin. And citronin can be quite problematic to kidney function and a lot of things, particularly as this straw is used, uh, particularly in the maternal herds, uh, this can be quite problematic over time. And over 60% of all the samples of straw were at uh, moderate or high risk. So it does present a problem. Even as you bed with straw, animals are going to graze that straw, whether it be a pig or a cow or a calf. Uh, they're still going to graze that bedding. So there's the risk of adding additional mycotoxin on top of what's in the finished feeds and TMRs. So forages do present a significant risk, uh, and it really needs to be monitored, and it really applies to all forms of forage and not just corn silage or grass silage or straw, but the haylages, all the other forages, the pea silage, small grain silages, they all can present similar risks. Well, Max Radka, many thanks for your insights today. And fundamentally, we have taken in the region of 3,000 samples 
from different uh, forages and grains uh, across uh, these different geographies uh, from this latest set of, of harvests, as it were. And uh, and you've tried to give us uh, some very top line uh, stats and, and insights to take away. If people are interested in in greater levels of detail, there are separate webinars that uh, you can log on to and watch historically. And if you visit uh, www.nomycotoxins.com, that's K-N-O-W, mycotoxins.com, uh, you can find links to those webinars. So uh, Max Radka, uh, once again, many thanks for your time uh, and your insights today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. We hope you enjoyed listening today and look forward to you joining us next time on the Mycotoxin Matters podcast. For more information on the topics discussed, please visit nomycotoxins.com. That's K-N-O-W, mycotoxins.com.